peace and welcome to another brand new episode of Out the Box Talks. I am your host, Krill. I want to give a big shout out to all of our viewers, all of our listeners, those who go above and beyond to support the channel. You know, whether you listen via our audio podcast platforms like Spotify, Google Podcasts, you know, Apple, wherever you listen to Out the Box Talks, audio, or if you just rock with us here on YouTube, I just want to say I appreciate you and I thank you for staying with us, right? Uh, we always have a new episode on a Friday, so today is no different. I have a special guest that I'm going to introduce to you in a little bit. But before I do that, I just want to shout out some of the different websites that we're connected with. So we have our main site, outtheboxmedia.com. If you're not familiar, definitely go over there and check out a list of the variety of interviews we've done over the years. We've been going for well over a decade. And all of the interviews, for the most part, are posted on the website. Now, you could also find our merch store, which is also connected to the website, but you could literally go to outtheboxmedia.bigcartel.com. I got a new snapback hat, the Out The Box TV hat. And uh, as you guys can probably see, I got the Out The Box TV um, baseball tees. So, you know... So you get a visual of what it looks like to help support the movement. Just understand that when you're rocking something out the box, you're rocking the energy of what we do here, right? Like what we stand for, promoting and giving recognition to creative, conscious, and thought-provoking artists, right? So just know that you're representing that movement. Now, also, we have our Patreon page which is patreon.com slash outtheboxmedia. You could also find that at the outtheboxmedia.com website. So you, we have exclusive interview clips of some of, of a number of our artists that we've interviewed. And these are exclusive interview clips that have not been, a, have not been made public, right? So it's only for the Patreon subscribers. So go over there if you want to, you know, support us on a monthly basis is a monthly subscription fee. It's a very small amount. But uh, if you want to support us in that way and get access to this exclusive content, you can hit us up on Patreon.com at Out The Box Media. And also, if you just want to donate to us, right, you just want to do a one and done donation, you could donate at Cash App at Out The Box Rep. No amount is too little. Whatever you can donate to keep the movement going, we appreciate that. We're also, you can also donate on PayPal, right? So the PayPal is paypal.me slash outtheboxmedia, as you see on the screen. Now, these links will also be up on the Out the Box Media website. So you can always just go to the website if you forget these links. And I'll put the website up one more time, outtheboxmedia.com. So, now that I got out the, that out the way, I kind of got to get those things out the way because sometimes I forget to promote. But uh, I want to introduce y'all to the guest that we have tonight. Our special guest. 
he is a brother that I'm actually first getting wind of, even though he's been making music since 2013. But he wears a number of hats. And I, I got to say his latest album entitled Wonderland is what really drew my attention. When I got wind of the project, it just automatically brought me in. I think it had to do with the rich production on the album, but also the thought-provoking content and his ability to express himself vocally on the album really connected with me. And it's one of those projects that I think when we go through our end-of-the-year projects, you know, it's one of the projects I hope folks don't sleep on because it definitely has a lot of quality to it. So this brother, like I said, has been doing his thing for quite some time. Like I said, way back to 2013, I think he's released at least 11 projects uh, up until this point. So I'm going to really be talking to him about this particular project, but we'll also get a chance to know about his history leading up to this point. So without further ado, I want to welcome to our Out the Box Talks viewing and listening audience for episode 64 of Out the Box Talks, my brother hailing from, actually he's a native of Boston, Massachusetts, but now residing in Sacramento. So he went from the East Coast to the West Coast, but his quality has maintained and I just am happy to invite him to the Out the Box Talks audience. So give it up for my brother, Paul Willis, on Out the Box Talks. Thank you. Welcome, brother Thank Paul. Thank you. Thank you, man. You're welcome, man. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. I forgot to uh, mention that you are not just an MC, but you are a spoken word artist. So, you know, I want to talk to you about that. But before we jump into that, man, I just want to big you up and just check in. How are you? How's life at this particular point in time? Thank you, man. I, I appreciate the love and, and the support. Um, you know, I, I've been blessed, you know, since the album came out and the film came out. There's been a lot of really... Uh, positive traction around the project. So that's really exciting. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking to virtually tour the project because we can't, you know, go out and perform at, at, at different venues right now. Um, so that's, that's been really cool. Harvard wants to screen the film. Uh, we're, we're putting together a, a, a virtual event with University of San Francisco and Sacramento State. So we're really kind of looking to take it across the country. I'm really excited about that. Man, that is awesome. That's that's great news. You know, obviously there's so much happening with this project that I want to talk to you about. But before we jump into this project, let me first just shout you out because I know you just had a birthday. So happy birthday. And thank you thank for you, spending time, you know, during your birthday time with us. Now, before we jump into the project, like I said, I always like the artists to kind of give 
the audience some insight on how you even got started with music, right? How did this whole idea to be a, a artist all begin for you? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I actually wrote my first rhyme when I was 12 for a talent show. Um, you know, my, my friends and I we were sixth graders and we were just starting to put words together. We picked all of our rap names out of textbooks, you know what I mean? And um, yeah, my, my first performance ever had all my gear on backwards. My hat was on backwards. I had layers like a button up shirt and this big old puffy coat on backwards, you know? Um, and I just started to like take off just different layers while I was performing and in the whole nine. Um, so it was a really cool experience uh, back then. Uh, my brother really inspired me. My brother was a poet. Um, my friends were really into rap, but my brother was watching uh, Deaf Poetry Jam and uh, just, just starting to put words together. He's a year older than me, so he would string all of these big words together, these multi-syllable words in his poems, and he would write love poems for money for his friends to impress the girls that they were trying to date. Um, so when I realized, like, oh, okay, this is something you can make a little bit of money in, there's something you can do to connect with other people. I was like, oh, this is cool, but I'm not going to go the route that my brother wants to go. You know, I want to put these words to this rhythm and this tempo and do what some of my favorite artists were doing, like Big and, uh, and, and Puff and Common, Talib Kweli and Most Def. You know, I wanted to do what they were doing, you know. So um, I started to put some stuff together and was writing for a long time, wrote rhymes all through high school. But it wasn't until my adult life that I started to like take it a little bit more serious. Um, I recorded my like, first album probably in like 2010 with my buddy. He had a studio at, at his crib and uh, we recorded everything in maybe like two weeks. And in the mixing process, his computer crashed and we lost everything. Um, and after that, it was you know, I wanted to uh, kind of get my life together. My life was like super crazy. And like you hear those stories in the music, um, but I was in this transition period where I, I left college. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I had just started uh, my service year with City Year. And uh, after a couple of years, I ended up moving to Sacramento where then I started to kind of get back serious into music when I knew that I had a little bit of stability, I knew I was gonna kind of be here for a while. Um, so using music was a way for me to connect with just other artists, find my tribe kind of here in Sacramento, find other people who were into the same things. And that's when I kind of released my first uh, mixtape. Uh, you know, it was a spoken word tape at the time. So some poetry that we threw to music and I'd never recorded anything outside of my attempt in 2010, so I wanted to kind of see what uh, people were charging out here, what the experience was going to be like, whether or not I wanted to stay with that engineer and go to somebody different. Uh, so it took a little bit of time before I kind of found my people that I knew I could lock in with and really uh, spend some time making music with uh, to get to this point. But that's a little bit of that backstory. I was really inspired by my brother, by artists that I looked up to. My sisters, my older sisters really introduced me to hip hop through, you know, uh, old Mary J. Blige and, uh, you know, Fuji records and stuff like that. 
Um, but I started writing rhymes to kind of fit in with my peers and uh, take it to the next level when I got uh, older. Dope, dope, man. Very well said, man. And it's such a a great, um, you know, background story, you know, in terms of getting getting on to hip hop. So now you've done a lot of projects. I was just looking at your band camp not too long ago and I seen you've put out a lot of EPs and albums along the way in the I guess in the briefest way possible can you kind of walk us through the major moments that led from your first album to where you are now today I know it's kind of a loaded question but in the briefest way that you could kind of guide us through for people that might not know of your history when i wanted to get serious as a rapper i had connected with a producer who was also a slam poet back home uh and a friend of mine who was on the slam team with this producer was like hey you know i think that y'all would be a good good match together so we did my uh my first kind of full-length like rap album called coast to coast and we probably only met maybe two or three times, me and Lewis Morris, uh, in person. But we now have probably 35 to 40 songs in my catalog together. Uh, but that's when I knew. I was like, okay, I could do this seriously. I can make money off of this. Um, I, was, I was selling CDs for $5. And at my first gig, I made back everything that I invested into the album and it was probably like a $800, you know, uh, project, uh, maybe like nine tracks or, or something like that. Um, but after that happened, I knew I was like, okay, this could be, you know, potentially like a real thing. So, you know, went from there to then exploring and finding producers with a similar sound here in Sacramento. I think I found those folks through the album Rough Draft and then through The Guardian. And that was an opportunity to really uh, flex a little bit. You know, I, I knew the process. I was comfortable in the process. I knew kind of my style and my sound as an artist. Um, so when I released Rough Draft back in uh, 2015, that was an opportunity for me to showcase a little bit more of my story and then to revisit and clean up some of the songs I'd written in the past. So it's like a 13 track A-side and then like a eight or nine track B-side that kind of revisited some of the older stuff that I was doing when I was 17, 18, 19 years old. Um, and that kind of gave people a little bit more about who, who I am. Uh, with that album in particular, I was a finalist with Team Backpack in 2015. So I got a chance to kind of go to LA, be around a bunch of other rappers who were hella competitive. And I was there like, oh, I'm like part of this group, you know? And there was a lot that I learned from that experience from how to market yourself, how to network um, and and what quality means across the country. So then I came back and started to map out what would be the Guardian, an album that I released in 2017. And I knew that I'm not a rapidy rapper like some of the cats that I met. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't rap about trap stuff. I'm I'm not a street guy. Uh, but I can put together these concepts really well, and my work is in the community. So I put together this album 
that was really centered around empathy. And I wanted people to hear the music through the lens of other characters that um, I was creating, whether they were like based in real life people in my personal life or the lives of my students and their families. Um, you know, I kind of put a lot in there so that people wouldn't be so quick to judge and uh, would want to find ways to kind of get involved and, and support others. So I think that those were kind of the, the main projects that moved me along. And then I met this cat. He goes by the Philharmonic. I met him at this producer showcase and he was going on after the headliner. He was kind of somebody who was there just to check it out. And after the headliner played like an hour long set from 11 to midnight, this kid was like, hey, do y'all mind if I like play you some beats? And there were maybe less than like 10 people in the room. And he played everything from like, tracks that sounded like Just Blaze and early Kanye to EDM to gospel music to soul like it was this wide range and uh you know we started a relationship where I started working on music with him and uh Promise in the Land of Milk and Honey kind of came out of that it was another uh you know concept record about love because I recognized that with all of the projects I had released about social justice issues and community issues that I really hadn't talked about love too much in my career. Um, so it was a step up musically for me in terms of production. Uh, the Broken Complex mixtape with uh, DJ Hoppa, DJ Silly Kid, uh, who produced for like Gavlin and a bunch of other artists um, in, in California and Vegas. I had won a contest by submitting this like social justice rap. So, you know, I was able to get uh, enough beats to put together a small mixtape for that. Um, but I realized that my sound is very musical and it's hip hop and it's jazzy, uh, but the lyrics are very much uh, conscious lyrics. They're about community. Uh, it's not corny in the sense of like, everybody's supposed to feel good all the time. You know what I mean? It, it really describes uh, some of, the reality of these issues that people deal with. So, you know, I, I do that through my personal storytelling and then through my work in the community. So um, I think that that's kind of the, the pieces that pushed me and were real turning points for me as an artist. And then when I got to Wonderland, you know, what I realized is I was doing all this community work here in Sacramento. Uh, people had gotten a chance to know me professionally and some people got to know me as an artist but they thought that I was just like this conscious dude always mm. that like I had never like experienced you know some of the stuff that maybe my students experienced and I, I wanted to show them something different and I wanted to go back and tell those stories about the relationship with my mom and what it was like in my neighborhood and being jumped and getting into fights and stuff like that I didn't want this perception that I was just this like perfect conscious being that's been woke since the womb, you know, I wanted to show them that it was a real struggle to kind of get to this point. And now that I'm here, this is what that growth and evolution looks like. So, you know, I feel like my catalog now can be almost cyclical, where like, if you listen to Wonderland, then you go back and you hear some of the music and the concepts of even my early stuff, you realize, okay, those concepts came from these experiences and it starts to make a little bit more sense for people. Wow, man. Very well said. And it just makes me 
really eager to go back into your catalog and just look at the journey, right? Uh, the musical journey that has led to this point. Now, in addition to you being a spoken word artist, um, you know, you also said you're a community organizer, right? I feel like you mm -hmm. wear so many hats, but in your bio, it also lists that you, that you are a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. Now, it sounds like a big set of words there, right? <laughs> but um, tell me, what does the title really mean? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I quit my job a year and a half ago because there were too many opportunities for me to continue to turn down. I think what happens in the social justice world is, you know, people think that that's primarily organizing protests and political actions and working on specific policies and laws and trying to get that stuff passed. You know, they, they see what they see on TV. Uh, but the real work of organizing in the community is building these deep and meaningful relationships to uh, get people from this point of, yeah, we think that stuff is important, but I don't know what I can do about it. To then showing them that, you know, here is your power and here's specifically action steps that you can do to get to that point. As a consultant, you know, I've kind of grown in that space where now it's not just about working with individual families and community members and being an advocate for students. Now I'm working with nonprofit organizations, uh, local media like the Sacramento Bee, which is our, our big kind of regional newspaper, um, working with the uh, Metro Edge Group, which is the young professionals through the Chamber of Commerce here in the city and doing workshops and trainings around um, language that is so considered social justice language. Um, you know, not everybody knows some of these new terms. Like if you, you know, try to explain to somebody from an older generation what non-binary means, you know, they may not have any clue, right? If you, if you uh, talk about assimilation and code switching and, you know, some of these other issues that exist, um, some people have never had a conversation like that in their in their lives. So for me to help break down what is anti-racism, what are the books that people should be reading, what resources should they be tapping into, that's the work of my consulting, is explaining the scope of that kind of transformational change and then walking organizations through the process of making that kind of change happen. Wow. Thank you for breaking that down. A lot of, lot of important work you're doing, brother. Uh, I mean, to be an MC, to be a spoken word artist, and also be doing all of that, it must be an experience. So let's talk yeah, about... Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. So let's talk about this album, Wonderland, right? When you think of the term Wonderland, it references this kind of magical, amazing, charming place. But when you listen to the music on the album, a lot of it is talking about your struggle coming up in Boston. So tell me why you chose to title this album Wonderland. There are, there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, I, I think I'll go to like the most obvious one for the general public. When I think of Wonderland, they might think of Alice in Wonderland. 
um, and, and just the Disney movie. And I, I want them to for this reason. Alice dreamt up this magical world with all of these creatures and all of these beings. She got to experience that freely, uninterrupted. She created all of the stuff that happened, the good, the bad. Um, and at the end of the movie, she gets woken up and she kind of gets to go back to her regular life, right? Um, what kids from my neighborhood were not allowed to do was dream. We weren't allowed to envision what life was like outside of my neighborhood, right? Outside of our city. I never thought I'd be in California. I never thought I'd leave Boston, right? So there's, there's that kind of parallel. The other thing is every song is list, listed after a, um, a, a train station or a bus station back home. So Wonderland is actually the stop that's at the end of the line, um, which is, is symbolic in a number of ways. But uh, in this one way in particular, if you're ever traveling to Logan Airport, it's past the airport. So you could literally leave the city and fly in, but never actually go and see Wonderland, mm. right? It's like a treasure. It's this gem that's there, but you know you may not have ever seen it. And actually, I had never been until we were shooting uh, the album photography and trying to see we get an album cover out of it. Uh, so my sister and I we we took the train for the first time and went out there, and it's uh, it's the beach. It's like Revere Beach, and uh, there's there's all this water and, and, and it was really kind of interesting to see that that's what was there at the end of the line. But it took for me to be a grown adult before I could even imagine that. Um, so so there are those things that uh, really kind of make up the name. But it's that idea, man. Like we're not we're not allowed to dream. But if we could, what's possible? And I feel like I've I've lived a life. Uh, uh, certain advantages and spaces and certain privileges and other spaces. Obviously, it hasn't all been, you know, roses and, and sunshine, but uh, I want to share my story about what it's like to get on the other side mm -hmm. of that, right? Like, what happens when you go to Wonderland and you come back? Or if Alice was able to show you what the rest of her life was like after going through that movie, you know, experience, that dream sequence. You know, what does it mean when you come back? And for our kids who grew up in the hood, like, you know, the dream is to get out of the hood, to leave. But me, I never wanted to leave, right? Like, I don't feel like the hood is a place to escape. It's a place where we should grow, right? Um, and that doesn't mean taking resources out. It means, you know, investing in it and watching people develop and grow and overcome adversity over time. So, you know, all of that's kind of packed into the meaning and then the stories of the album help unpack that even more. Wow, man. You That description that you gave made the album even more dope. Like, just now I got to go back to listen to it from that lens. You know, I see Wonderland placed at the end of the album, but I didn't realize that it was actually moving in that sequential order with the tracks. Which actually leads me to my next question, um, because, like I said, what's interesting about the album is 
I actually thought it was street names, but now that you say it's like train stops or it's also bus stops too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so train and bus stops. It 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 makes me wonder, like, um, how did you go about deciding what bus or train stops you would name each track on the album, as it regards to the messages that were on each track? Yeah, um, I've actually lived. In, in or around all of those neighborhoods, uh, except for maybe like two examples that I'll share a little bit more. But I, I grew up in Jamaica Plains, so Jackson Square was my train station. Heath Street, you know, th- that, that was the projects two blocks over. But uh, if you had walked uh, to the next available train station, it was the Green Line and that was Heath Street. And Jackson Square and Heath Street were like opposite ends of my neighborhood. And, you know, because there were multiple gangs that resided in my neighborhood, it wasn't just like Crips and Bloods, like gangs of Boston had street names and that's how they identified. Uh, So I didn't want people to know where I lived or that I affiliated with one gang more than another and that kind of thing. So I used to have to take different routes home and different bus and train stations kind of out of the neighborhood so that people wouldn't assume or try to place me in a box or a category uh, that I didn't want to be in. So, so there's that. I, the two exceptions for that were uh, Maverick and then Wonderland. And I kind of explained Wonderland as like the concept and, and all of that. Uh, but Maverick is a song about, you know, there, there was no father's name on my birth certificate. And I, we'll probably get into this more later, but not having a father in my life and what that meant, I, had probably only written maybe like half a verse about that ever in my entire catalog. And I wanted to revisit that topic as somebody who, you know, has grown up, I'm, I'm now a man and I'm, you know, just proposed. So my, my fiance and I were, you know, thinking about starting this, this new life and this new chapter together, right? So there are a whole bunch of things that I feel like, man, maybe I've missed out uh, in terms of like fatherly lessons and things like that. My buddy Chinua, who's featured on the record, he knows his grandfather, his dad. He is a dad to young boys. He also has a couple of girls too. Uh, so I asked him to, you know, rap about just lessons that he learned from his father and lessons that he might want to pass on to his kids to help provide that balance because Black people aren't a monolith. We don't all have that same story. So I wanted to kind of share some of that where it's like, this is what, this is how this has impacted my life. Here's something that's a little bit different. And if I could speak directly to my dad, then here's what I would want him to know um, that him not being there wasn't uh, this impediment to my life. You know, it was an opportunity for me to, to find multiple male figures to help fill some of that role for, for part of the time. And, you know, I, I kind of looked for the good um, and then left all the stuff that I didn't think was was OK. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, that those are the, the, the two songs that are exceptions to that. But everywhere else, like I actually live there. I have family there. I spent time in those neighborhoods or near those uh, bus and train stations and stuff like that. Wow, man. And what a positive outlook to have when you talk about, you know, not with your father not being there, which I'm definitely going to talk to you about Maverick a little later on in the interview. 
But in regards to the production on the album, as I said earlier, it was one of the things that really brought me in. Um, talk to me a little bit about it because it's very rich. And as I understand, the project is produced by Bap Notes. So tell me who Bap Notes is and did he use any live instrumentation on the project? Because I hear a lot of like live piano sounds. At least that's what it sounds like to me. Uh, but it, it really works. So talk to me a little bit about his presence on this project. Yeah. Um, so Bap Notes, they're kind of led by uh, this guy's name is Rod Morgan, but they're an actual band. So imagine like this group of like OGs from South Sacramento who have been playing like hip hop. That's like Dilla style, funk, soul, jazz music. They can literally play anything. Um, so when I first heard them, I was blown away. And then I heard them behind a couple of hip hop artists who I really respect uh, here in Sacramento. And it just blew my mind. I knew at some point it's like, you know, this band is a band that plays my style of music in their sleep. So let me find a way or an opportunity to pay them what they're worth, to get them, to, you know, to, to help me develop this sound. And then let's jump in from there. Uh, and they produced, I, I think, the majority of the album, save maybe two or three songs. Uh, they they really kind of produced everything else. And, you know, I held on to some of their beats for like at least two years, two and a half years before we like came back to the studio and started to kind of tweak with the arrangement a little bit. Um, it takes me a long time to kind of write, but because I was working on a number of different projects and working a regular job, for me, it was you know, finding these moments and opportunities to take the very best of my writing and tell my story with that. So there were verses I rewrote, whole songs on this album that started somewhere. And then I was like, nope, that's not the direction or that's not good enough. Like I need to dig deeper or I need to learn more about this actual story. There are stories on the album about my mom that you know, when I started writing, I said, oh, I actually need to pick up the phone and have this conversation. Or I need to go see my auntie, you know, down in Codman Square at, at her restaurant and like sit down with her and say like, hey, can you explain this to me? Because the way I thought about this as a kid, maybe I was wrong, you know? Um, so the bat notes kind of really worked with me throughout that process. And when I had a body of work that I was like, hey, like these are the songs, uh, they took what I had written, and, and it was mainly Rod who led the like mixing and mastering process. Um, he would record these live jam sessions with his band, and he would send me loops that, that they were kind of grooving on or jamming on. And then when I would send him back, like, this is my idea around the lyrics and the arrangement, then he would say, okay, now let me go and remix that. So then he would like maybe add new drums or change this section and there were some songs that like the music completely changed because he heard what I was saying and wanted to match the emotional tone of the words and said, you know what, what I gave you, yeah, that was like funky and it was hip and upbeat, but what you were saying was like deeper and more personal. So I'm gonna take away drums here 
and I'm going to give you a different ambiance for this particular song. So, uh, you know, it was crazy kind of in, in that process because for me, I think I've been very hands-on with producers, you know, uh, just learning about their process and learning about instruments and all of this stuff. But this was really kind of a master class in some of the, like, best producers, you know what I mean? Uh, Rod and and the Bap Notes, they've, they've worked with some legendary artists, uh, R&B and gospel artists, but also, you know, uh, you know, some of the biggest names in, like, West Coast hip-hop. You know what I mean? Like they they've worked with some of those cats too, uh, folks like Mark Knox, who did the uh, "I Want to Thank Me" uh, song with Snoop Dogg. Um, you know, Mark also works with like Battle Cat, a whole bunch of other cats. You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, so they're they're this incredible, incredible musical band and, and super talented. Um, the other production credits on the album belong to Jeffrey Archie Jr who's a 24-year-old producer from Sacramento, born and raised. His family kind of plays in a lot of the churches locally. And he produced Cobman Square and Kendall MIT. Um, and he's just this young, budding talent who can produce a lot of different styles. And he's just super killer um, at what he does. And then the opening track was done by uh, David McKissick's band, uh, A Tribe Quartet. And they do a lot of uh, just Black American music where they mix jazz, funk, and soul with uh, more modern kind of hip hop. And they'll like infuse uh, samples together with original like jazz and soul music. So producing that first song where I was like, hey man, I need something that's like a, like a Dominican Dilla because my neighborhood was full of like Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Cubans. You know what I mean? I, I think that they really captured the essence of what I was looking for. And, you know, that song took probably three years to put together. But once we had it right, we had it right. Wow, man, that's dope. You know, what I'm gathering as I hear you talk about the process of recording this album is that this was almost like a, a journey of you learning about your family story, right? When you said you had to call your aunt or call your mom, like, how fulfilling was that to you, that experience? It, it was incredible. Um, and, and, for, and for the people who just don't know, right, um, my mom had me in 87. Like, it was the height of the crack cocaine era. She dealt with alcohol and drug addiction for decades of her life. Uh, she really wasn't present in my life when I was, a, when I was young. And there's no father's name on my birth certificate. My grandmother raised me and my brothers and sisters coming up. And we would see my mom maybe every once in a while, but we really didn't have a relationship until, you know, right around the time I was like 12 or 13 and my grandma got sick. You know, she was kind of diagnosed with like a late stage uh, diabetes and she couldn't live at home and couldn't work anymore. So she went to a, a nursing home. And the courts really ordered the rest of us to go and live with my mom, who was not ready. So she was like court ordered to go through AA and like wasn't prepared. She wasn't working a job. She was making maybe like $600 a month off of Social Security. You know what I'm saying? So it was hard, you know, and there was even a period of time where, you know, during the summer and like winter breaks when I would be home 
you know, from school, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, I was, and I was just present and I had to be like the man of the house. I have an older brother who's a year older than me, but he's not confrontational at all. So they were like grown men. I had to like fight for real. You know what I'm saying? Who, uh, just took all sorts of liberties, you know, in, in, in my house and in my mom's life. And there were, there were a whole bunch of other things that like were happening that, you know, no kid should ever have to deal with. None of that stuff was normal. And I recognize that. Um, but there was a point in my life where I didn't speak to my mom for like six years. Like she almost had me arrested, like over like toilet paper, man. Like I didn't have like $2 to like buy some. It was, it was crazy. Um, but uh, I learned about addiction and the physical impact on the mind and the body. When I was in college, I had, a, I had a girlfriend at the time who was studying psychology and it was like part of her notes. And I was like, can I see what you're looking at, what you're reading? Started reading through the chapter. I'm like, this is my life. Like, this is my mom that they're talking about in these pages. This is all of this stuff. So it started this process for me. When I was maybe like 19 or 20 years old. Like, oh, I need to go back and like apologize because maybe I just didn't understand mm. that, you know, she, she loved us. She just couldn't control this stuff. Right. She couldn't manage it. You know, when people have addiction, it's not something that's, you know, a, a choice after a certain point, right? Their body can't help kind of craving and wanting these, these harmful th substances. So yeah, I, I remember kind of going back to my mom and having this reconciliation conversation with her. I was like, look, like, I don't know everything. I don't know your full story, you know, but I understand now that I've said and done things that were harmful to you. Um, and she acknowledged just her like not being there. And, and, and that was the start of rebuilding our relationship. And it took a long time to kind of get to a point where we're now like texting each other. She like texts my fiance, you know what I mean? And that kind of thing. It's definitely a better situation, but you know, when I was writing this music, you know, we were becoming closer and closer just through that process. And I got to hear stories about her when she was a little girl and then what she was like in her teenage years, you know, stuff that she didn't want to tell me, but my aunties would give me all the tea, you know what I mean? And, and would share about like who my mom was, you know, who, who she really was before she was dealing with all that stuff. So, um, you know, I, I learned so much and it was, it was healing. Um, it, it was, it was a real blessing. It took a lot of maturity to kind of get to that point. You know, when I was 15, 16 years old, I couldn't process this information, but, you know, being, I'm, I'm 34 now. So, you know, when I started working on this, I had 30, 31, 32, and I'm starting to kind of figure out, okay, let me piece together my mom's life and her struggles uh, and let, let me kind of build these songs, being truthful, you know what I mean? Like when you're a kid, you might write some stuff and it's like, this is my angry scribbles, you know, this is my angry freestyle, it's my it's like super emotional just thoughts. But when you get a little bit older, you get to reflect a little bit more, you see that it wasn't just other people doing stuff to you or in my case to me, it was, oh, I had a hand in that too. You know what I mean? Those situations were ideal. But, you know, I also didn't help. So, you know, there, there was just a lot of growth that happened. Wow, man. That's amazing, man. Good for you. I'm so glad to hear that you and your mom now have sort of a repaired relationship and things are looking looking good, man. Wow, that's amazing. 
Thank you. It's it. I'll, I'll add this other point is that, uh, you know, just before my birthday, you know, I'd shared with her that I had taken a DNA test. One of my elders out here, he's a genealogist. He's somebody who I work with just in the community. And he was like, hey, like, you know, you don't know who your dad is, but I think that you should do this. You know, maybe you can like learn about the culture and its people. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, I had gotten the results just before my birthday and I was able to talk to my mom about the results and how, um, you know, 50% of it was like consistent with being Jamaican and the like West African kind of mix, you know, of tribes that were there, but like 50% was Ethiopian. And it was wild. And I had to talk to my mom about that. And I was like, so you really don't remember like who this person may have been? Because this seems like, you know, an Ethiopian would have stood out in Jamaica, right? Or like wherever. And she was like, no, actually, I, I do know who he is. Like, he was a friend. They were in a relationship, but it wasn't like super serious at the time. And she thinks that he actually might still be alive, which is like even crazier to think about. So she's going to try and find him in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so maybe your- next time we have a conversation, who knows? Like, I'm, I may have met my dad by that point. Uh, we'll see. But, wow. you know, we're at that point in our relationship now. We're even stuff from like my origin story. You know, is is shifting and changing in a really positive way. So this is amazing, man. And this is your dad, right? Like you, wow, man. I yeah. I I I gotta talk to you about Maverick, man. But um, let's do this. Let's talk about your grandmother, cause on the track Forest Hills, you you talk really highly of her. What would you say? was the most important thing you gained from your grandmother's legacy? Yeah. Um, my, my grandmother was a nurse. She was a minister in a church. Um, she was an immigrant, right? So she went from Jamaica, studied uh, nursing at Oxford in England before moving to the States. Um, so she had some of that experience there too. And I think the most important things that she, she passed on were, um, education is the most important thing in your life that knowledge is power and once you have that knowledge and information nobody can take that away from you so you know whether you're like getting that education in school or you're learning from other places doesn't matter like you will be a, this lifelong learner so you know uh maintain that perspective um and, and stay humble don't pretend like you know everything because you can't um, and then faith, you know, just believing in something that's bigger than yourself to help you get through some of the darkest moments in your life, I think was super important. Um, you know, for me in all of these struggles, I always believe that things will work out. We, we will find a way, you know what I mean? When we didn't have anything, it was like, yo, we're going to make a way right now. You know, we're going to find something if, if we need to sell, uh, uh, clothes or raps or poems or whatever like that's what we'll do to kind of get by but we're gonna make a way whatever sacrifices we have to make that's what we'll do and then my grandmother was this huge figure in the community you know and while she was working these double and triple shifts at the hospital anybody's got family who works at any hospital in america you know that those are really long shifts um we had people in our community who would look out for us so my grandma had tabs 
at like the bodegas up the street, down the street, the, the pizza shop. You know what I mean? If we needed to get dinner or pizza pie, we could go in, order it. They would give it to us. And my grandmother would go and just like even even with them later, you know, but we had people in our neighborhood who really looked out for us in those ways. Uh, I remember I didn't know how to tie a tie and there was some important thing that was going on. Uh, and my neighbor, my next, my grandma called my next door neighbor to come over and he taught me how to tie a tie. You know what I mean? So it was like things like that, that um, showed me that community was super important and those relationships, you'll just, ne you just never know when you'll need to call on people or when people will need to call on you. So just being a solid individual will be, you know, will forever kind of work in your favor. So I think those three things were the things that I gained from her. Well said, man. That's dope. And it's so like grandmothers, right? Like when you think about the impact that grandmothers just naturally have. So let's jump to Maverick because I know we've been talking about this, this track for a minute. So on Maverick, you talk about the reality of what it was like growing up with an absentee father and him just not being in your life. And I mean, I hope that you're able to meet him at some point. But I have to ask this question because it's something that I've struggled with as well personally, right? My biological father wasn't has necessarily not been in my life. And I've gotten to a place, unfortunately, where I have kind of learned to live with the idea that he almost doesn't exist. But I don't know if I'm fully at peace with that just yet. I asked the question back to you. Have you gotten to that place? Are you at peace? If, I mean, my hope is that you do get a chance to meet him. But just this idea of that you may never meet him, right? Um, are you at a place where you're at peace? Or if not, like, how are you processing that? Because I can say for me, it's a, it's a funny place. I want to say that I'm at peace. But at the same time, I don't know if I'm really at peace yet with that, right? But I've just learned to just kind of live with the idea that it just is what it is. And I may never get a chance to develop that relationship. So, I mean, that's, that's where I stand. But I wanted to, as you were talking about earlier, like hearing other people's perspectives... I feel like me and you may share a similar experience in that, and I wanted to hear what, you know, your perspective was, if you don't mm -hmm. mind. No, absolutely. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you in, in a, I think, these, these two ways, because the recent information is, like, too new, and that's, like, not how I was living my life, right? Um. I was with my grandma the night before she passed away. And that song Forest Hills kind of details that. The conversation that we had that night was about me forgiving my mom and um, trying to work it out. Like, 
it was one of those moments that, you know, my grandmother, I don't know if she knew she wasn't going to kind of make it through the night or not. I have no idea. Right. But her, her words to me were really like stress the importance of the people who you have in your life at this current moment, you know, they're, they're not perfect people. Don't build them up. Don't put them on a pedestal and try your best to love them for who they are, you know? And, um, that was maybe hard for me to get when I was a teenager, but at that particular moment in my life was like, if this is what my grandma wants me to do, she's never really started, you know, sent me down the wrong path. I'm, I'm going to give this a shot and whatever I have to do in order to be able to process that, you know, um, there might be certain things that I might be still be angry about. This doesn't need to be a perfect reconciliation, but if I can express, you know, what, what my feelings are about the situation in that despite any of those feelings of anger or resentment and the hurt that I felt that I'd be willing to still work it out or give it another shot. Um, I think that that would just say a lot, whether or not my mom was open to that. You know, it just, what it meant for me was I would need to approach her with that sense of, of peace, I guess. Like my heart would have to be at peace, even if my mind wasn't, but my heart would have to be. So I'd be open to that, even if she wasn't. Um, so when I think about you know, not having a dad for the longest time. When I was a kid, I was angry. I was hurt. Whenever there were issues like with my mom, I was like, well, who do I go to? You know, to the point where my, my grandmother would tell me like, I am your mother and your father. Like, you don't need to seek that validation. You don't have to, you know, try and find that somewhere else. Like I, it's right here with me, you know? And um, I think what that taught me early on is that you know, your your family isn't just your like blood related family, right? It's your chosen family, the people who you accept into your life with, with love and openness and, and all of that. So for me, I and I even remember like pushing certain adults away who expressed that they cared, who wanted to be there for us. I, I remember like allowing them in, but having this wall up, you know, I was guarded. I just didn't want, you know, uh, people to, to love me more than my mom or to love me more than my dad, who I didn't know, you know, his story. Um, but, you know, I, I, I didn't want that kind of attention from people who were willing to give it uh, because I wasn't getting it from wanted it from, you know? And, uh, you know, I, I think over time, what I, what I learned was that, you know, in order to truly express myself and express love and to show people, um, you know, just like what, what, what it means to be whole, right. And fully human that I had to be willing to like let others in. And I found that the easiest way to do that was to express myself artistically. Like, so to share poems, share my raps about these personal stories and kind of go there with people. So then we could talk about it in a way that like wasn't as harmful. If I could harness 
this emotional energy and put it into a performance or to a song or something like that, then that might give people an opportunity to really kind of digest it and, you know, speak to me about it without necessarily like having to bring up every single hurtful memory and thing. Like they kind of got the gist of it through the music and then we can have a different kind of conversation. So um, I always grew up kind of thinking, you know what, if there's no father's name, I might not ever know, um, you know, I'm going to have to learn what it means to, to become a man, to become a good partner. Uh, and eventually one day, you know what I mean? To become a good dad without one. So then the, the people who I started to surround myself with in my adult life were people who I thought were just like upstanding kind of role models for me in that sense. Uh, people who were good fathers, who were there for their kids, people who were uh, great business people and like handle their stuff, you know what I'm saying? So I started looking for those examples in other places um, and started to kind of do the things that I saw um, from, from those sources of inspiration. Um, now with this new information, right? The fact that he might actually be alive, there are some things that I have to process with that too. Mm. He might have a family. He may not know about me at all, right? So he may want a relationship, he may not. Um, it's not, none of that is clear at, at this point. Um, or he, he may not be alive, right? My mom thinks he's alive, but that doesn't actually mean that he is. And I'd have to kind of deal with not knowing um, and not having the opportunity to know. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't like to uh, write people off. You know what I mean? I, I think I want to give them opportunities to kind of be their best selves and to stand up and um, to, to, to show me what they are capable of. Um, if that means that, you know, I get hurt in the process, then, you know, what that's, that's what that means. I can, I can deal with that. I've seen worse. Mm. I've been through worse, you know? So if somebody hurts my feelings because something they say they don't want a relationship or, and that's, that's okay. You know what I mean? I've, I've survived, uh, a, a lot more um, that really honestly should have killed me or, you know what I mean, had me in, in, in all sorts of situations. But, um, you know, because of that, I'm, I'm at a place now where I know that if I'm putting uh, love and positive energy into the world, then that's what I'm going to get back. And if people want to be a part of that, that's fantastic. If they don't, they don't. I can't help them with that. Um, would I want a relationship? Yeah, I think so. I think that that would be a really cool thing. Uh, can I learn to live without one? Yes, because I have been and I can continue to. So I think that that's, I don't know if that's like helpful at all in no, terms that's, of advice, that's, but like that's how I've processed it. That's real talk. And, and that's, that's kind of the way I see it, right? Like I, I, w I, I wouldn't say that there's, there's no optimism for me. Like if it does happen, I'd be the first one that want to try to, you know, make things right, you know, but it's been so long that I've just had to kind of just live like that. But I appreciate your, your feedback. I, you know, cause when I listened to the song, the way you were writing on the song, like it, it definitely hit home in that way, you know, cause I think there's a line where you say, if this is my last time speaking about you, even though I haven't spoken about you 
you know, as your father, you know, as a father in any of your music before, that hit me a certain way. And I thought about this, this idea of, um, you know, what if it never happens, you know? So, um, yeah, man, thank you for, um, sharing that. And thank you for the Maverick record. Now, thank you. Thanks a lot. Indeed. Indeed. Going back to your mom, right? I know you spoke about your mom being on drugs and you having to deal with that growing up. What would you say, despite those challenges, right, of what you experienced with her, you know, um, her addiction, what would you say, if you had to look at it from a positive perspective, what would you say you gained from those challenges of seeing her like that growing up, like from a positive perspective? Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I, I think I learned what, what family meant um, because while she was struggling, my brothers and sisters really stepped up for each other. You know, um, there were times where I was homeless. I didn't have a place to go. My sisters would take me in. Um, times where, you know, if I didn't have any money in my pocket and, and my older brother just worked at the mall, whatever, he'd be like, yo, I got 40 bucks for you. Can you make that stretch for the week? You know what I mean? Like just moments like that. Um, there were moments where I was able to support and guide my little sister or try to give advice to my little brother who kind of dibbling and dabbling in the streets and just wasn't going well for him. Um, you know, so I really kind of learned what, what family meant. Like we all had the similar experiences with my mom. But then how we processed that and dealt with that was very different across the board. You know, I have a sister who went to the Harvard uh, Kennedy School of Business and, and UPenn for law school. And I have brothers, you know what I'm saying, who, you know, selling weed and and into like street life and that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Like I have a sister who, who went to college the, and she was the, the year below me graduating before me. You know what I mean? Like we have this like wide range of of talent and creativity and experience in my family. Um, and it's it's really cool to kind of see us now that we're all grown. Um, but growing up, it was hard to see what we would eventually become. Mm. You know, we had these hopes, uh, but we weren't sure if that's actually where we were going to end up. Uh, so kind of being being with each other to support each other through that process was was a huge thing. Um, and then I think the only other thing was this like uh, resiliency. You know what I mean? Like, like we we all kind of came from the hood. We all grew up like this. Uh, there were a number of our friends who went through similar experiences, but like I don't have too many like child childhood friends who like aren't in gangs aren't dead aren't in jail you know what i mean like there's very few people from when i was young who are really thriving at this point in their lives and you know some of that is like luck and circumstances but i think what made our family a little bit different was you know there was always that sense of like belief in something you know what i mean and i think that that belief helped really kind of drive us through. And that's part of what I think made us really resilient 
that we had this hope that we were clinging on to. So no matter what situation, no matter how crazy it would be, we always knew we could bounce back from it or get through it. Um, so learning what family is, learning what resiliency is, that's how I'd answer that. Wow. That's dope, man. It's good that you could look back in hindsight and be like, man, these are the things that I gained that was good, right? Out of, even though it was challenging coming up. So one of my favorite tracks on the album is Ruggles. And you have a line on that song where you say, Guru and Mr. Lift taught me about the struggle. Talk to me about what you learned from these two amazing native Boston MCs as it pertains to struggle. Yeah. Um, you go back and listen to Jasmine Taz, uh, Mr. Liv, so many classics like Enter the Colossus and uh, I Phantom. Um, they really kind of gave me insights into like what the world means as a black man from Boston, right? Um, and I know that we got like guru, like as a loner, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but to see him thrive and to go to, you know, Paris and to uh, share kind of this hip hop, this jazz and this cultural kind of history and legacy, um, that was super critical, I think, in, in my early development, because he was somebody who was spitting conscious rhymes, but they were based in this reality. Like, he painted these pictures of the world around him and people and situations in a way that it was like, okay, I understand what that means, but you're not giving it to me in a way that's, like, prescriptive to, like, what my life is going to be. You know what I mean? Like, you might describe a really dangerous situation or you know, street stuff, but you're not telling me that's, that's what I have to be. You're showing me that like, yo, like that's, you know, situation that people go through. And if you're not careful, you'll get caught up. And, and that was a huge thing I, I learned from him. Uh, but for Mr. Liv, what was wild was he was this like really nerdy, just like high intellectual, highly skilled, lyrically, you know, MC who, and I was a nerd, you know what I mean? Like, I love books. I, like, I really liked and enjoyed school thoroughly. Uh, for me, school was like my safe haven outside of all the craziness uh, from home and other places. So having a role model like that who could develop these like otherworldly concepts, but also share with you about, uh, you know, this is what it means to be like a, a working class rapper to, you know, go to your day job and then go home and, you know what I mean? Perform at a show, like all that kind of stuff. So kind of seeing how they moved, um, seeing what they talked about in their rhymes. As much as I love Big, like I'm not a drug dealer. You know what I'm saying? Love Jay-Z, fam. Like I can't, I can't relate to that all the way. You know what I mean? I, I appreciate your hustle, your ambition, and how you turn something that was really negative into something that was, that was really positive. But that wasn't, that's not my story. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I can put negative into positive too, but you know, I can't uh, blow hundreds of thousands of dollars in Vegas, buy champagne bottles, you know, travel to Virginia and Alexis. You know, I just I can't do none of that. Like, I love y'all, but that that wasn't me, you know. So, um, you know, Guru, Mr. Lift, there are a number of other artists who 
showed me that you can be in hip hop and be something different than what the mainstream is, is giving you. And it's not that, you know, we didn't respect it. It was like, yo, like I respect Jay-Z and 50 and Big and Pac and all of, all of these, you know, amazing artists. Um, but finding this other lane, I think was crucial for me to know, yo, I can do this and I can be who I am uh, without trying to front to be something I'm not. Wow. That's so dope, man. So on the song Dudley, you have a line where you say, what is hope when you're a statistic? And it made me think about how some of us come into the world just at a disadvantage automatically. But I wanted to challenge that statistic. So how do we create outcomes that despite these unfortunate statistics, we are still able to propel forward into success and happiness? I think there are two things that are key in doing that. One, you can uh, change the rules of the game, right? So if you change all the incentives and conditions that exist, then you're going to get different outcomes. And a lot of people look at like, policy making and they go into law and that kind of thing. I was a political science major in college. So like everybody who was in my major, they ended up going on to law school. And I understand that that just wasn't the path for me. Um, so, so there's that. The other thing that you can do though, is change all the people within that system uh, that create those rules and conditions and replace them with people who want different outcomes. Uh, so when you look at those two things, um, they're so powerful if you have both of those things. And we see some of that. Uh, Ayanna Presley in college, AOC, I mean, not in college, in Congress, uh, AOC in Congress. We, uh, Mayor Michael Tubbs, you know, out here in Stockton, California with the universal basic income program and just people who are like, yo, we can change, um, we can change what these outcomes are by shifting these policies that we have control over. And, and there's that. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard to believe in a system that was built uh, intentionally to separate people by economic class first, and then to separate people by race. You know, um, if, if racism wasn't profitable, then like it, it, it wouldn't happen. You know, you look back at, at colonialism and uh, kind of the, the, the rape pillage uh, of African resources, including its people, to develop wealth for, you know, European nations and then eventually America. Um, you know, you realize that it's hard to believe in this thought and this idea, this myth that America is so great. Right, um, because it hasn't been great for everybody. So, what's what's hope for people when you are, um, you know, one one in every three uh, black men, you know, might be incarcerated. You know, what what what's hope when, um, you know, the the stop and frisk program, you know, what I'm saying, just like rolls up on young people or just people of color 
and cops can do whatever they want to you in, in that moment, whether you're committing a crime or not. You know, um, there, there are so many like racist policies uh, that then reinforce racist ideas. Um, it's, it's hard to challenge that stuff. But I think that the tide is turning a bit. Um, I think that we have now the numbers to really shift some things in some of the major cities in America. And while we don't have uh, a ton of black people in some of the rural parts of the country or black and brown people in, in rural parts of the country to really shift some of those political outcomes in those spaces, I think we're starting to see it. You know, Georgia, which is a red state for a long time, you know, it flipped in, in, in this past election. So I think that there's, uh, you know, tremendous kind of hope and opportunity I'm not saying that, you know, I, I believe and have 100% complete faith in the system, um, but it's important, I think, to, to keep the work and, and, and the people motivated. Uh, the, the key factor to do that is having hope. You know what I mean? So I think in order to change the outcomes, we, we got to do one of those two things. We got to change all the actors in the system and then we have to kind of de-incentivize racism and racist ideology, racist policies. We have to de-incentivize that so it's no longer profitable to, to behave in that way. Uh, capitalism is a beast, you know what I mean? And a lot of people think that racism is a separate thing from capitalism, some of these economic forces, but it isn't. You know, it just reinforces this stuff so that some people can be in, in this top kind of 1% and others will never achieve that. Um, but it, it can be a tool, you know, it just, we, we need people with different motivations, you know what I mean, in that 1%. And, um, you know, that doesn't mean that you just replace all the billionaires with black people because black capitalism doesn't always yield some of the same results. It's this mindset shift. You really do need both. You need people who believe and the deconstruction of those things that are really harmful. And then you need to change the policies that reinforce that stuff. So, you know, it's, it's a heavy lift and we need a lot of people uh, to be able to do it. But I think the world is waking up because it's more connected than ever. Yeah, I can definitely, um, I think the optimism is there. Yeah, I think that, I, I would say I can concur with the optimism um, that the world is waking up. Now, on your song, Kendall, I think it's Kendall M2. I'm forgetting the actual title. Oh, uh, MIT. MIT, I'm so sorry. Kendall mm -hmm. MIT. You say that when you were growing up, um, you were told you were too smart for the hood, too smart for the hood brothers, and too black for the white folk. Now, that's a unique but a, a common thing that happens to a lot of black people growing up, right? What do you think contributed to you having that mindset, you know, too smart for the hood, but too black for the white folk? Uh, and, you know, when you really think about it, it's like you have the mindset of having that sense of black pride, but at the same time, you're knowledgeable enough to know that you can rise above the negative stereotypes of the hood. Like what, 
contributed to you having that mindset? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. So my middle school is called Nativity Prep. Um, and I'll, I had to kind of explain how I got there. Uh, I broke my leg when I was in second grade. So I missed like the remainder of school and like basically all of my third grade year. Um, I had to relearn how to walk. My teacher would come to my house every day after school. She's a, a black teacher, Miss Dance, incredible woman. Uh, she'd give me the lesson so I wouldn't fall behind. Um, and I remember kind of getting ready to test back into school. They're like, you know, you have to take these summer school courses and, and, and take this test to make sure that, you know, you're, you're c coming back in at the third grade level. Uh, but what they found was I had aced all my summer school courses and I aced the test. Um, and they moved me into a fourth grade advanced workshop class. Uh, my teacher from that class over the, you know, couple of years that I was there for fourth grade and fifth grade uh, basically told me and, and my grandmother that like, I shouldn't be in the public school system anymore. So my middle school was this Jesuit independent school that took kids with like high promise from at-risk areas all over the city, right? Uh, maybe they had high test scores or really good grades or this potential, and they would prepare them for private and day New England uh, boarding and, and day schools throughout, you know, just throughout the region. And, you know, when I, when I explain what a boarding school is to people here in California, they don't get it um, because boarding schools out here have a different kind of connotation. They uh, were places where natives were stripped of their culture and their language and their identity and forced to assimilate into white culture. And they were just like really kind of, uh, terrible and toxic uh, place that caused so much trauma in native communities out here. But back home, right, and y'all might know this a little bit better, it's like we're like the Kennedys would send their kids. You know what I'm saying? Like presidents and governors and, you know, this like really kind of wealthy class of people uh, would send their kids to these, you know, prep schools throughout, throughout the region and they'd have a, a fundamentally different type of education experience. So, while my middle school was this like really small school, right? There were probably maybe like 70 to 80 kids in my entire middle school. I was like number three in my class, I think, in, in academics. Um, I was going through all of that stuff with my grandmother being sick, having to move in with my mom who lived in Cambridge, but I was going to a school in Roxbury. That's where my middle school was. So I had to commute every day, like 90 minutes. To, uh, to get to schools. I was taking the buses and trains by myself uh, to do that. Um, and I knew that living at home would actually create more of a burden for like my mom and the family. We just, we didn't have space. There wasn't like food, like there was so many things. So I decided to apply to every single boarding school that I could. And there were a whole bunch of places I didn't get in like Phillips Exeter, uh, Andover, uh, a whole bunch of schools that like were the wealthiest schools, uh, most elite. Like I applied to all of those places. I didn't get in, um, but I got into this one boarding school in Rhode Island, in Portsmouth, Rhode Island. And I was one of two black kids in my class. I was one of maybe 13 black kids at like the most, you know what I mean? And my entire four years there. And my high school was a place where you know, you have white kids from all over, 
uh, and we had a, you know, a number of different international students, but I really learned to differentiate, um, you know, white kids by class because there were white kids who were like really wealthy, who would like treat you like shit. Like you weren't like anything to them. I'm sorry if I, if I cursed and I don't know if that's allowed or not, but, um, but there were white kids who, who treated you like that. And then there were other kids who were like equally as wealthy or maybe they were like this upper middle class who had a ton of respect for me. Like no matter, didn't matter that I was black, that, that wasn't important to them. Who I was as a human being, how I treated them and how I treated other people was like way more important. So I started to kind of understand class differences, how you know some of them uh, really viewed the world. Um, and, and it was just really, really kind of interesting experience because then I'd go home for winter break and for summer vacation and be back in the middle of the stuff. Like, you know, I remember when it was time for me to go home after my freshman year away, I didn't have a ride. So I got stuck at school for a week. And then like a, a, a friend, you know, whose, whose parent was doing business in Rhode Island, like popped by the school and was like, I'll take you home. You know what I mean? So I like pack up my stuff for the summer and, and go back. Um, but it was it was just this like wild and crazy experience where, you know, we were like fight. I was like fighting for like my life and to protect my family literally over the summer, 14, 15, 16 years old. And then I'd go back to school and we're reading the Odyssey and, um, you know, books by Shakespeare. And I'm taking a humanities course and reading Nietzsche and Plato and and we're studying about John Locke and, you know what I mean? All this stuff. I'm like, yo, like this world, this dichotomy, you know, who I have to be in one space and who I have to be in another space. That's, that's where that mindset kind of came from. It's like, look, like, you know, I, I can't be the same person uh, in both of these places, although I am the same person in both of these places. So I have to like put on this mask, you know what I mean? Like when I'm at school, I'm not going to, I'm going to throw these walls up. I'm not going to let you in. I'm not sharing about my personal life. When it comes time for me to like try to date somebody, like, no, you can't meet my family. Like, this is not, this is not going to work. Right. Like me and my family didn't always work, you know? So um, it, was, it was stuff like that. You know what I mean? Um, during those years, it was really up and down and really tumultuous. But um, at school, I was like a really good student. You know what I mean? And when it was time to apply to colleges, I was a three-sport varsity athlete. I was president uh, for like three different clubs on campus. Um, I helped to kind of restart the MLK Day celebrations on our school's campus um, and stuff like that. So then when I applied to college, I got in everywhere, full rides everywhere I applied. Um, and, and that really kind of shifted some things for me too. But you know, my, my high school and my college were predominantly white institutions who didn't know how to support a kid like me. You know what I mean? Like I, I got there and I had to figure it out. Um, and while people wanted to help or wanted to try to help, like they had no one who understood what this experience was like for me. Um, and it's part of the reason why I ended up leaving college is because I knew it wasn't the place for me uh, anymore to, to continue to be successful when I was like working three jobs, taking a full course load, coaching and mentoring and, and volunteering in a community, 
I just knew I had to kind of get out of there and, and take some time to figure it out for myself. So um, that's where a lot of that comes from, man, that, that living between two worlds, uh, you know, being being in both worlds, but not being of both worlds. Got it. Now, your Bandcamp description of the Wonderland album, I think it's the first line in the description. You say, forget album of the year. This is album of your career. Why is this album over all of the other albums you've done representative of album of your career? Um, everything was done at the highest levels, in my in my opinion. You know what I mean? I'm not um, I'm not Jay. I'm 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 not Kanye. I don't have a multi million dollar budget or nothing like that. But when you hear the music on this album, um, and if you're like deep into like music, then you know that a lot of that uh, theory and in jazz and soul, like a lot of those black influences, that's all present in this album. Uh, and then when you look at the lyrics and um, no song is structured the same way. So like typically a hip hop song will have like three 16 bar verses, uh, maybe a four bar hook or an eight bar hook, uh, something like that. None of these songs resemble uh, those exact types of formats. There are songs with hooks. There are songs without hooks. There are songs that are just long verses. There's a poem that's like over music and that's like one of the tracks. <laughs> um, so, so when you look at that, like how everything was arranged and then the content that's in the lyrics, their personal stories, these are authentic things. Uh, I'm not making stuff up. It's not party music, and that's that's fine. It doesn't have to be. Um, but for this like genre and style, I think it's uh, one of the uh, best albums. Like, period. Um, and for me, easily like one of the best things I've I've produced. So, you know, it, it took three years, and it was three years really uh, well spent. Um, you know, the process for, for just getting it done was incredible. But now, like, I feel like I'm just getting started, you know, with it, too. That while it uh, feels like this capstone kind of moment in my career that it's been building to get to this point, um, the kind of impact that it can have moving forward is exciting, you know. So we'll see, you know, out, out the gate having opportunities to connect with people all over the country, at the college and university level, kind of jumping into the, the hip hop as fine art campaign. Like there are so many cool things that I think will come out of this album, these experiences and connecting with people um, that, that it's gonna resonate. So I, I don't have a, a million dollar marketing budget, but if I did, you know what I mean? Like I feel like there could reach so many more people uh, but I feel like even if it doesn't have a super wide reach, you know, it might have a little bit narrow reach. The depth of that reach is, is going to be incredible. I think it's going to impact people in a really powerful way. So that that's why I feel like it's that. Mm. I could dig it. Tell me a little bit more about this hip hop is fine art campaign. What's the goal of the campaign? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the goal of the campaign is to really show people that like classical art, music, and dance, how they have their space and opportunity to kind of be in museums and uh, theatrical spaces and stages. Um, and they've kind of created that platform. I believe that hip hop deserves to be on that platform, not as a collaborator in that space, but because the art, when it's done really well, that it deserves that kind of attention and critique and that hard look. Um, you know, this isn't like uh, like some of those like hip hop purists who are like, that's real hip hop. That isn't real hip hop. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is uh, hip hop can be, and it has the uh, cultural impact and, um, and meaning that the Mona Lisa has, that the Sistine Chapel has, the Statue of David. People view those things as like, this is the pinnacle of art. What I want to show people is like hip hop can be that too. You know, what the, the struggle is, right, is getting people who are not from the culture or of the culture to see it through that lens, right? Is that you have these traditionally white and predominantly white institutions that, you know, hold a lot of the power and the say-so about like what's supposed to be fine art and, and what isn't. But all of those institutions have left out black art, you know, for, for generations. And I, I think about the, the documentary that just came out, Black Art uh, in the Absence of Light, you know, as a way to kind of showcase the struggle of Black artists to just get into gallery spaces and museums and places like the Studio Museum in, in Brooklyn and places like that, the Brickhouse Art Gallery uh, here in Oak Park, the Sojourner Truth Museum here in South Sacramento, places like that that put Black artists and Black stories in the center of, of their exhibits, I think that that's the kind of thing that deserves uh, love and attention and support. So my push, it's really this like diversity, equity and inclusion push on those fine art spaces to create space for uh, black art to just exist as is and not exist with white labels on top of it and to not exist for the white gays to like make it this profitable thing. Like that's not, that's not what this is for. You can put Kerry James Marshall in any museum, you know what I mean? Like in the country and it should be able to stand in that way. Um, I also believe that, you know, museums shouldn't just be uh, visual art uh, discovery platforms. I think that they can be music uh, discovery platforms as well. So I have some ideas around introducing music in museum spaces that I think could really transform people's experience when they exist in those spaces. And the music I really want to play for them is like, yo, it's like hip hop stuff at the highest levels, you know? And when you know what you're listening to, when you know what you're listening for, um, then there's an opportunity for you to really appreciate the art that's created. Um, I want to share my, my music as an example of that, but there are a ton of other artists who make such high quality hip hop music that I'm like, man, like, when you when you know what went into this, you can appreciate the beauty that this is. So it's it's uh, perspective shifting work, lens shifting work, um, and something that combines all of my like passions and professional uh, experience. So 
So I'm excited to share it uh, with folks. Um, for people who are kind of interested in learning more about like the actual experience, it's, it's a four hour virtual experience right now where we do a workshop in that first hour, we play the film, uh, we have some Q and A around the film. People get to hear the album. We do discussion, and then we open it up for like more Q and A, networking, meet and greet, and that sort of thing to really build relationships and connections to see how we take the information and then move it to the next phase. Um, where, where I hope it leads is, you know, obviously if there's opportunities to put my my music in in, in the film in some of those spaces, then that's amazing. But if it also means that I get to uh, curate some museum exhibits, uh, you know, across the country, then I'd be open to that too. Um, because I think that there's tremendous opportunity uh, for hip hop to really impact that space. Uh, and not just like diversify uh, the, the audience that's coming into those spaces, but to really put out this message of like, we value things that are created from black and brown and indigenous uh, people, uh, people from marginalized communities. We want those voices here in our space as part of our regular programming and not something that we're doing here on the side. This is just part of what we do. Wow, man, you are doing quite a lot. And I commend you for your efforts. Um, you know, I, 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 I like the idea of this hip hop is fine art campaign. Talk to me about the Wonderland film. What exactly does viewers gain like what does the viewers gain from the film and how does it complement the music of Wonderland? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we've talked a lot about how the music specifically speaks to my personal story, the story of my family, the neighborhood and places where I grew up. Um, if people go back to Boston and try to like sightsee or tour the album, a lot of those neighborhoods like fundamentally have changed because of gentrification um, and, and, and the kind of gradual process of cities growing and shifting over time. Sacramento is in the middle of that right now where we're seeing a lot of developers come in, a lot of Bay Area transplants were getting priced out who are moving to Sacramento. The rents are kind of through the roof here and there's no renters protection. Um, so there, there's a lot of stuff that's really problematic with that. Uh, but namely, and this was a community that, that I worked closely with uh, for a number of years here in Sacramento, the CV Circle New Alvisa community, uh, you know, they right next door to those properties um, were built these like this expansive set of condos that start at $300,000 to get in for a condo. Um, you're talking literally across the street from people who make less than maybe $7,000, $8,000 a year. You know, people who've been in generational poverty who haven't been allowed to move out of the projects due to racist uh, FHA uh, policies and practices over time that have kind of kept black and brown people uh, locked into the projects. You know, you got people who, who, who live in these projects who, that haven't been updated. You know, these homes haven't been modernized or touched really since 1940s you know, um, just really kind of challenging stuff. So what I wanted to do with the film was show people how hip hop can be this tool for uh, amplifying voices of marginalized communities and it can work to be a tool for transformation. So we've got me doing live performances 
uh, throughout the film with, with my full band. So people get to see that. We've got dancers and poets. And then we've got these community interviews uh, that were done by people who kind of live, work, and impact uh, you know, the, the community that, that I just described. And um, it's the community telling the community story about what they want for their kids, what their hopes and dreams are, um, you know, what they see as the issues, and also what they see as potential solutions. You know, it's not me telling it for them, it's me providing space in this thing that I created for them to tell it themselves, while I'm also sharing that this was my experience with the exact same thing that y'all are going through. And I think projects like that, um, that, you know, has hip hop artists who lend their talents and their stories um, and their platforms to help elevate the stories and, 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 and platforms of people who are going through the struggle. I think it's stuff like that, that makes hip hop really fine art, that makes it this thing that's like, yo, this is way more than just a song. You know what I mean? This is way more than uh, just, just a dope line or, or a cool little hook that was sung. You know what I mean? This is really impacting people's lives in, in meaningful ways. And it can impact city politics and policies and entrepreneurship and sending kids to college and all this really dope stuff. Uh, part of the funding for the film, uh, you know, it was a, a $10,000 film uh, that, that I got grant funding to kind of execute on. We took $1,000 out of the $10,000 to provide scholarships for uh, this uh, dance program, Studio T's Urban Dance Academy. Miss T is somebody who's worked with some of the top names in dance, like some of her students have gone on to choreograph for Beyonce and Justin Bieber and, you know what I mean, some of those big artists. Uh, but she has this program where she literally takes like these babies from the projects and develop their dance style from when they're literally like, you know, eight, nine and 10 years old to when they're full grown adults. And she doesn't just work with the students, but she pulls in their parents and it's a this massive thing. So we gave a thousand dollars to her uh, for scholarship money for students who maybe couldn't afford lessons during the pandemic so that, you know, they can continue to participate uh, in, in a really powerful way. Um, and, you know, I just made sure that was one of the first things that we did She's somebody who was interviewed, um, you know, in the film. So she gets to speak her truth a little bit more. Um, but for, for hip hop artists, I just want us to think like that. You know what I mean? Like put your money where your mouth is, the things that you said that you care about. You know what I mean? I, I think about uh, 2 Chains, who does uh, Christmas gifts, like bikes and all sorts of stuff uh, for people um, every year. I know like Jay-Z on a high profile note will pay people's court cases and we'll do kind of legal advocacy uh, for stuff like that. But I, I want this you know, new generation of artists to also put that as part of their plans. You know what I mean? Go get your money, entertain people, do what you do, but know that when you get to that place of privilege, that there are gonna be some people who could really use your support. And if I can do it with like little to no money, then like y'all can do it too with, you know what I mean? Million dollar budgets and, and the whole nine. So. Uh, that's that's kind of my hope and dream about how this influences and, and impacts uh, people in the genre. Where can uh, people find the film? Like, is it out anywhere for people to actually mm -hmm. say out digitally? Or do they have to purchase it? Where can they find the film? 
Yeah, uh, people can't purchase it right now, but uh, they can go watch it on the Black Artist Fund uh, website. So that's blackartistfund.org slash Wonderland. Um, because the Black Artist Fund put up the money for the film and you know, I had won an award the previous year that helped me really kind of finish the album. Um, you know, they're a huge part of the reason that this even got done. You know, otherwise it would have been me kind of coming out of pocket for all of these expenses and probably would have taken another year, potentially two years to kind of do it. Um, but they, they really kind of connected me with the right types of funding opportunities to get it done. So uh, blackartistfund.org slash Wonderland, and people will see the information about the album, the film, and everything there. Uh, we also spotlighted another artist who received some grant funding through the Black Artist Fund. Her name is Aaliyah Sadiq. She's an amazing visual artist and muralist. So you'll get to kind of see her mural that she did on the side of the school, uh, kind of representing this like new generation of, of kids and youngsters who are coming up. Um, and then they'll get to see a chance to, to see the film and a panel conversation that we had about the, the role of black art during a pandemic. You know, we had um, uh, one of the board members from the Black Artist Fund, myself and Aaliyah, and then we had a school board member, Chinua Rhodes, um, who represents the district that he was a student in. You know what I'm saying? Like he represents the neighborhood where, where he came up through schools and, and that's pretty dope. His kids are now in the school district. He's also a hip hop artist. You know what I mean? Like we met each other through music and I watched him kind of grow and uh, build businesses, you know, build his family and all that stuff. So I've been a huge champion of his for a long time. He's the artist who's on Maverick, you know, so he's on the panel. And then uh, we invited uh, Kiana Williamson, who is the Equity Lab editor uh, at the Sacramento Bee. Um, her role and responsibility there is to manage a team of journalists who cover the Black, uh, Latino, and Asian Pacific Islander uh, communities in uh, Sacramento. Um, and she comes from that community. She actually spent some time in New York where she uh, worked on the 1619 Project uh, with the New York Times. So, uh, you know, she kind of came home, got into this editorial role, and we invited her to be a guest speaker on the panel to kind of talk about what it means to elevate marginalized voices during the pandemic and making sure that people have uh, that space to say what they need to say and gain access to resources. Um, so it's a really dope like piece. It's probably maybe like uh, two hours or so of watch time through through that site. But um, what what is exciting is that, you know, that's not the only type of conversation that people want to have about the film. That's just one of the many. You know, some people watch the film and want to talk about gentrification. Some people want to talk about the film and talk about, uh, uh, see the film and then talk about diversity, equity and inclusion issues or how do young people get involved in all this kind of stuff. So I'm looking forward to kind of sharing the film with different pockets and different groups all over the country and then having these conversations about, you know, what's possible. Wow, man. So much happening for you, man. Like, I, I, I mean, I'm so like happy for the movement that you've been making, man. And um, I'm definitely gonna go uh, check out some of those sites and you know look look more at the work. So 
the other thing I wanted to ask you is that there are acoustic and live versions to this Wonderland album. Tell me why you decided to produce these different versions. And as I understand, it's not like the full album. It's like about a few tracks from the album. But why um, the acoustic and the live versions? Yeah. Um, when I was doing live shows, uh, what I discovered was, you know, I, I used to rap over tracks. Like, I just, like, throw beats on, and I'm, like, rapping, and I'm in time, and some of that stuff just, like, flies over people's heads, and I don't, I didn't understand why at first. I know, like, tip it, like typical, like, hip-hop communities, like, get it. Like, we come from the culture, throw the beat on, the MC's rapping, like, we, we know what's happening here. But there's this whole other audience of people who, like, they struggle to understand the meaning when it's, like, done in that time. So for some people, it, like, really clicks when they hear, like, live bands play, right? It just, like, resonates or sounds familiar to them. There's another group of people who, when you strip away all of the music, right, and you just perform over, like, keys, or you might have a saxophone. I've also incorporated, like, dancers, like, uh, with me to, to do performances where it's, like, me, a piano player, a djembe player, and a crump dancer. And then we'll do something that's like hip hop and jazzy, and my guys is like crumping, like through it. And people are like, yo, this is a completely, this takes on a different meaning, you know, because they see words and emotions being expressed from the dancer and they like get it. You know what I mean? For some people, um, they can hear the words clearer because there's there's not all the music that's happening in the background. So I learned that, you know, as a performing artist, I can give people just different levels of this and, you know, people enjoy that. So I wanted to uh, do that with this particular record because we had the ability to do it. Uh, so we just went ahead and we're like, okay, we're gonna put the stuff together, let's package it uh, and then make it possible for people to get it. Um, you know, people if they just want one of those versions, cool. They can they can buy it through the Bandcamp and all of that. If they want all three of them, then that's fantastic too. I really recommend that people just buy the discography. And if you're gonna buy those three in particular for like forty bucks, get the discography for thirty six dollars, and you'll get all of this music and and you'll be able to enjoy that. So that's my like push to people is like, I want you to have as much of my music as possible um, in all of the different ways that you enjoy it. The other thing that's like, you know, because we can't do live shows, giving people that live feel is a really cool like added bonus during this time. So you can enjoy the full album and you can enjoy like these live versions of the album that you would normally get a chance to see me do in person but because that's not possible right now you could still purchase it i think that's really dope that you offered that uh that sound option to be able to get live live recording being that we can't really do live live shows right now listen paul thank i just want to thank you man for your time i know we spent a lot of time today but um i think it was worthwhile i think you had a lot to say that 
for folks that don't know you, they're going to be like, wow, like this guy is doing all of this. And for those, those that do know you, I guess it um, reinforces kind of the value that you bring, not just as an artist, but as an organizer and all the different things you're involved with. And I just want to say continue on, man. Much continued success to you uh, in all of your endeavors, man. Uh, so in closing, what is like some last words that you would want to leave to the fans of your music or just, I guess, final words in, in reference to this project, Wonderland, and the impact you would like it to have on others? Yeah, I'm going to tell you all, like my elders told me, uh, when, when they heard about this project and, and the whole nine, they told me, dream big and don't box yourself in. Um, one of my elders, he's a, you know, one of the original percussionists for the Whalers, uh, you know, like Bob Marley and the Whalers for, for some of those folks who may not know that band. Um, and he told me when he, when he heard some of this music, he said, you better go ahead and get your cabinet ready because you're running for office. <laughs> um, so, you know, just dream big. Like, whatever you decide to do, if you want to be in politics, you want to be in education, you want to run a school, you want to run a business, whatever it is, uh, don't let anybody try to tell you uh, what you can or cannot do. Educate yourself and then go after it. Go get it because the world is a lot larger uh, than than you you think it is, and it's more connected than it's ever been. So now's the time. Wonderful, well said. And just for folks that may not know, you kind of want to give them your, you know, your social media platforms and maybe websites where they can find you or even find the music. Yeah, purchase the music. everything is Paul Willis is hip hop. So that's my Instagram handle. That's my Facebook page. That's my Gmail. That's my Venmo and my Cash App. Uh, Paul Willis is hip hop. Um, that's where you can find everything. Um, if you message me, you're getting me. You're not getting like my manager or anything. Like that. I don't have a manager. It's just me. Um, so you can communicate with me directly. And if there are opportunities, like you want me to come and speak to uh, kids or like at, in a classroom setting, I'm down to do that. Um, I had one dad hit me up and asked if I could help his 13 uh, year old on a, on a hip hop history project. So like, you just never know <laughs> like what ends up happening, but like, feel free to reach out to me. And if you want to connect me with an opportunity or if you wanted to collaborate on a virtual event right now, then feel free. Uh, I'm, I'm open to all of those ideas. And because I do consulting work full time, uh, that allows me a certain amount of freedom to just say yes to the things that I'm passionate about and the people that I care about. So we may not have met yet, but know that um, I'm super just like open to possibilities that, that exist out there. So hit me up and, um, you know, looking forward to it. Uh, Paul Willis is hiphop.bandcamp.com um, is where you can purchase the music. But if you just want to stream it, it's available on all all the streaming platforms too. Uh, Title, uh, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, all those places. You can find the Wonderland album and a bunch of other records from my catalog in those places too. All right, well said, man. So on 
that note, I just want to give a big shout out to all of our viewers and listeners. I know this was a longer interview, but I hope you guys appreciated it for the ones that did stay the course. Remember, you could always replay it, rewind it, start again. That's the beautiful thing about On Demand. Uh, our website, again, is outtheboxmedia.com. Also, make sure you go to the podcast. So we have our video podcast, which is pretty much the YouTube interviews. But uh, you could also find us on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Stitcher, generally where you would listen to audio podcasts. So you'll be able to hear the high quality um, audio podcasts as well. Thank you again, Brother Paul. Again, I wish you all the best and continued success. And until the next time, we will see you all next Friday. All of our listeners and viewers, we want you to stay safe, stay peaceful, stay happy and focused. Peace, love, and light. We see you next time. And we out of here. <laughs>